Today, I'm excited to talk about a share farming model which is radically different. Food system change makers, Kirsten Larson and Serenity Hill, chat about their groundbreaking new collaborative farming model and succession plan designed to improve ecological function, support a diverse range of small-scale businesses, and ensure security of tenure for emerging farmers. The women have created a trust which over 80 years shifts the equity of the family's farm into a not-for-profit conditional on improving ecological conditions of the land. As property prices skyrocket, creating significant barriers to dynamic young farmers entering the market, and ageing farmers look for ways to continue living on productive, regeneratively managed land, on this season of Farming Together, our host Amanda Scott explores the ins and outs of a collaborative and creative solution that's quickly gaining momentum. Share farming on this season of Farming Together. Welcome, Kirsten and Serenity, to this, what I think is a really exciting episode. And I'm so looking forward to hearing your story about this great share farming opportunity that you, you guys are developing. But first, I think there's a lot of interesting story that precedes where you are at this point in time today. And I was hoping that, that one of you would just like to give a bit of an overview of who you are and where you've come from. Okay. Well, Serenity and I met when we were working in um, state government in Victoria, working in kind of climate change and sustainability policy and both interested in food and trying to drive a kind of food systems understanding into sustainability policy but we come from very different backgrounds serenity comes from a farm in northeast victoria which we'll hear about today and i come from new zealand via eastern suburbs of melbourne so i'm very much a city girl i guess and we were working in government together for a number of years trying to get policy change around food systems and then both ended up going into research at melbourne university around sustainable food systems yeah, that journey went back into government a couple of times and ultimately led in 2011 to basically saying, look, if we want this change to happen, we have to start creating it from the ground up and we have to start trying to create the systems that we want. And our particular focus area was around the disconnection between producers who were trying to do the right thing, regenerative farming wasn't called that then, and the consumers or eaters in the cities that we were connected with and how to better connect those. So that was how the Open Food Network started. Serenity, do you want to just talk a little bit about your PhD, which also was a big... Uh, which, yeah. yeah, yeah, which was um, something that I never kind of finished, but it involved a lot of in-depth research and interviewing with farmers. And I obviously grew up with a lot of farmers around me as well and observing my parents' situation where it was very clear that there was like land care and environmentally sort of orientated farmers who wanted not to drive their land too hard but were forced to buy the markets that they were selling into. So commodity markets with lower prices, I mean, they're a lot higher now. And that, that whole system was requiring that you had higher stocking rates than, you know, what you wanted to. We were observing that kind of the concentration and the unfairness of those markets. And so that's why we wanted to focus our attention on this kind of distribution piece. Fantastic. And so Open Food Network was born 
I imagine after a lot of sweat and tears, <laughs> I hear a lot of people talking about Open Food Network, but for anyone who, who doesn't know about it, do you want to just tell us a bit more? Yeah, so Open Food Network basically started as an online marketplace for connecting farmers with eaters and enabling farmers to tell their own stories and set their own prices. But the critical thing about Open Food Network is that it supports collaboration and farmers working together on distribution offers. So while a farmer can have their own profile and online store, e-commerce store, it also enables those stores to be networked together into you know, food hubs, online farmers markets, or a group of farmers who are all delivering into a bunch of towns or pick up points together every week or every month. So it really is about supporting that collaboration and innovation in short supply chains. So it started as building this online platform, which is open source. Because it's an open source platform, we've built a global community. Uh, we're working with people in now 19 countries who are working together to build and continue developing this platform. And so we're also gathering knowledge, I guess, about the different models of how this food distribution works all over the world. And then the platform continues improving to be able to support those models of farmers working together. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess there's one other um, sort of linking bit of the story is that Serenity and I, um, when we met and got together, it was always clear that it was part of the deal that Serenity was moving back to the farm. And that was always ex exciting for me. That was a positive, not a negative. But because of the work that we were doing and our understanding of the system, we were pretty clear that we didn't want to farm until we had control of our supply chain. So we headed off on a I guess we'll move back to the farm in five or 10 years or something, but let's just do some work on supply chains first. And then it's grown significantly <laughs> since then to the point that we're now back at the farm and struggling to find time to do all of the things. But yeah, that, that's also the connection. It was driven very much by us wanting to be on the farm and wanting to be able to restore land and wanting to have supply chains that enabled that um, and made that you know, possible, supported us to do that. How fantastic. I love that you've achieved your goal at that point in time, but you've also helped so many others along the way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say achieved goal. It's a, it's a work in progress. <laughs> work in yeah. progress. Well, well, you're on the farm. That's one tick. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Absolutely. And so now you're on the farm, you've decided to take on a new challenge. Yeah, moving back to the farm. So we're on... 400 acres in Warren Bain in northeast Victoria. We're currently leasing that from my mum and we run um, Aussie White lambs and we're selling them directly to customers on the Open Food Network. As part of this kind of journey, we realise like we, we're farming regeneratively because our kind of core goal is about climate mitigation and improving the ecosystems kind of around us. Like that's why we're interested in food production and we think that food production has uh, such a huge potential to shift our ecosystems and landscapes. But we have recognised that regenerative production, if you kind of take it to its potential, potentially requires, you know, more people than just two people working hundreds of, or thousands of, of acres. And we've had this experience with Open Food Network where we just trusted and um, put it out there and said, 
as a kind of open source collaborative project. And we had just this amazing response to that over years of a whole lot of other people coming and working on this problem with us. So we could see the potential with the farm if we were to work out a model that other people could come and join us in that kind of journey and, and bring it to its potential. We could also see structurally in the, in the food system this problem of young farmers getting access to land is like this core issue that we need to resolve somehow. So we were interested in exploring that. And I think the core kind of part of that problem is bringing new or, or young farmers have an opportunity to come onto land where that feels like a place that they can commit their, like in the long term, commit to and feel like they're part of and building. And I think sometimes in kind of a, a lease arrangement or, or other arrangements like that, it's not the same as this, is this sense of connection that you get with ownership, but we all can't own land. So is there something in between where we can set it up where people feel that kind of connection? So we currently lease from my mum, but we're in the process of succession planning and we're developing a model where the land will be transferred into a, a family trust, but that there is a non-profit set up to run the farm and the non-profit has a, has a lease arrangement, a long-term lease arrangement with the trust. And over the course of the 80 years of that agreement, the ownership of the land transfers gradually to the non-profit if it's ticking off on improving the ecological function of the land. So that's a lot that I just said in a short period yeah. of time. Maybe we can pick that apart a bit and maybe Kirsten can add to that as well. I think I just wanted to add a couple of things on the why. So the, this idea that people, you know, having tenure you know, not just kind of short-term leases or that feeling that you're building soil or planting trees that someone else owns and, you know, that you don't have that connection. And for us, this is also part of, I guess, exploring and experimenting with a shift around land custodianship rather than land ownership and that our right to, right to be there and our right to manage land is connected to how well we do it and whether we're increasing health and diversity and ecosystem function and, you know, that these things, these kind of deeper connections to place and land are part of what makes us have a right to be there. So it is kind of pushing into that space around saying, well, we're not here just because we own it or because we've inherited it. We're here because we have a responsibility to improving the health of this country. So the succession plan is really around, you know, Serenity's family, her mother and her two brothers sharing these values and sharing this vision. And so for Serenity's mother, the three conditions in doing this, basically that ecological condition of the land continues to improve, uh, that it continues to produce food, like it's got to be agroecology, it's got to be in farming, and that all three of her children, so Serenity and her two brothers, have somewhere to go and a right to be there and that that right will carry forward through generations so that that connection to place will persist. So the, the succession model around the trust really becomes that Serenity and her two brothers as the beneficiaries except to get their beneficial interest in the land in ecological value rather than financial value. In accepting that, they're saying that if this long-term tenant, which is called Pakawiji, if the long-term tenant, which is the non-profit called Pakawiji, 
continues to improve the ecological condition of the land and produce food and ensure our access to live there or whatever, then every year there's basically an accrued equity, an amount that comes off the purchase price so that at 80 years when the trust winds up, the non-profit will effectively have accrued the property and it will move into what then is public or common ownership via the non-profit and the non-profit exists for, you know, land and cultural regeneration. I'm taking that all in now. Yeah, it sounds amazing. It sounds a lot to take in, but understand the principle. And I think it's a really interesting concept in terms of transferring our thinking from ownership to custodianship. And also, you know, we really heard a lot from young farmers. I mean, many of them are so grateful in the first place to be able to find land to farm. But there is this sense of, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. And, uh, you know, some of the farmers have been just so grateful and a willingness to just work on someone else's land and help build it and leave it in a better state than found it. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, they, they face having to, to just walk away and leave it. One of the young farmers we spoke to had set up everything in a way that made it all the assets portable. Obviously, you can't do that if you're improving the soil, but it still gives them the sense of I could ultimately go almost at any time. So it's a really Mm. great idea where you're enabling people to have a sense of of place, I guess, in the longer term. Is that? It's It's a really interesting one because the reality of trying to work all of this out and people finding their place and it's like a relationship, you know, when you do commit or don't commit, you know, so that's obviously a very live conversation with the people who are there now. And so the first guy who came, you know, he bought lots of portable fencing infrastructure and, you know, mobile cool room, you know, he brought all of his stuff and it's very clearly his stuff. And so keeping that kind of sense of, you know, if he leaves, he takes that stuff. So it's people kind of bringing what they have to try and make it work and that relationship and, you know, that shifts and changes. And so it's not like anyone's married, but there does come a point where it's like, okay, well, when does the, when does the community buy or invest in infrastructure and when do individuals buy and invest in infrastructure? And so some of these decisions between how people do it individually to maintain their ability to leave and how we do things collectively so that we're really co-investing in what we need and balancing the needs of different people. So we've got a couple of other families there now as well who have a priority around building a workshop because there's lots of different economic activities they can generate from that. So it's kind of this balancing of all of the different needs and requirements and where, where money goes in terms of trying to make sure that we can regenerate the land and also create the kind of living conditions that make it possible for people to be there in the the longer terms. Absolutely. It's a really interesting, I don't want to say challenge, but something that needs to be worked through. (laughs) And I'll be really interested to follow your story to see how that unfolds. So I'm just trying to understand. So at the moment, you lease land from your family's property, Serenity, your mum's property, but you have others on there as well who are farming on that land? So it's all in kind of formation. So yep. we're currently running the sheep as part of our partnership. We're looking to um, transfer the lease to, to Pakawiji, the non-profit that we've set up, that other people will be a part of. But it's very much in formation at the moment. 
at the moment the other people living there are kind of contributing in terms of a, a lease and we're working together to form up what this kind of thing looks like going forward. But the idea is that the farming enterprises will be run from the non-profit and that people can join the non-profit, you know, as directors and have a, have a say in how that works. Yeah, and then there might be opportunity for people to run independent enterprises themselves as well in terms of an arrangement. But yeah, we're in formation stage. We're um, working it out a little bit as we're going in parallel to, to getting all of the legal set up and sorted out. I just wanted, I guess, also to say, yeah, so we've got people who are particularly interested in market gardening, so they're trying to get a market garden happening, as well as, you know, obviously the grazing, and then there's potential for a lot of other things. And the model that we're working with, actually, we were headed in a direction of having a kind of cooperative, you know, and that everyone who came would have their own kind of farm business and subleases and things like that. The reason we moved to the non-profit was because all of that is still possible. We can still sublease a particular area to a particular farm and work out lease arrangements or, you know, how payments work or whatever. But we were actually inspired by Ceres, which is an environment park in inner city Melbourne on a landfill that was started in the 80s, but is a really strong social enterprise incubator and has a lot of different activities happening within that land and has launched lots of businesses, social enterprises, you know, all sorts of things. And the way that that can really act as an incubator or a nest for things so that you've got this real flexibility of people come, you know, and they've got heaps of enthusiasm and skills, but no capital, no money, you know, that there's a way that we can kind of incubate something as, right, this is a thing that we're all trying and you're going to run it. And then if you get it actually generating enough income, then you will be contributing a proportion of that back or, you know, so there's all of this kind of flexibility to hold things within the nonprofit and potentially to get funding to support things and all of that kind of thing that doing it as the nonprofit enables, as well as I guess that security around the asset lock. So the critical thing about a nonprofit being its assets can only be passed on for the same purpose, can't be liquidated for the value of directors or whatever. So it gives people that security that, you know, if I'm coming and doing all of this work, you know, and throwing myself into it for five years, if I decide to leave, it's not that I've made a whole lot of money for someone else. I've invested in something that is still being held for the public good. And that said, we're also obviously working on arrangements, you know, trying to work out with people how to manage that risk for themselves and particularly around infrastructure that can't be moved like capital and looking at a range of different ways to do that if someone's investing their time and money in building said workshop what's a way to have them be able to recapture some of that value if they decide to leave a lot of live conversations around all of this stuff definitely watch this space what what yeah. did what have been some of the biggest challenges you've talked about working out how to value that infrastructure and um, reduce the risk around that for, mm. for those on the farm. What, what are some of the other challenges that you've really faced so far in the development of this concept? I reckon one of the biggest things is just this balance between having it all kind of stitched up and enabling other people to contribute and build the vision. And there's like, it can't be a completely blank slate because then people don't want to sort of step into kind of a basket case or not know what they're stepping into. They need enough certainty to see this is a, a vision I share and this is something I want to be a part of. 
but you don't want to have a master plan thing with all ends of the detail sorted out because then people can't really participate and own and form that kind of together. So I think conceptually that like that is a really big challenge. The other thing is just money, like set up costs of any farm and, and transitioning to the regenerative and the fencing and the infrastructure that we need is a perpetual challenge and how we pull, as Kirsten was describing, how we work out ways that people can pull money into that but then also know that they can take resources when they leave, et cetera, et cetera. I reckon one of the biggest challenges but it's also the most, I guess, interesting or enlivening bit is just how deeply ingrained our concepts of ownership and security are. So it's the, this thing around can you be secure without owning land and what does that look like? And, you know, just how deeply embedded in our psyche is the idea that we own land and that, that that's the thing that, you know, makes us sort of safe. You know, I, even, rega- I even feel a bit funny you just talking about it. Like I can feel yeah. how, how deeply embedded that concept is yeah and because the way our whole society is structured around that even though you know the reality of farming and the amount of foreclosure of land and everything that happens you know it's kind of like is it more secure and in the context of climate change and what is our security actually based on and how we can build lives you know where we're maximizing resilience and security in ways that's not just purely the ownership but that at the same time, you know, the tenure, the right to be there, regardless of whether you legally own it, is a tricky thing. And I think, you know, for me, there's this element of settlerdom. I wasn't born in Australia. I came here when I was 13, but I was born in New Zealand, which is a not dissimilar situation. And the fact that all of this land came into our ownership in, you know, through very dubious means, So this kind of question of being willing to kind of go there about what does it mean to attempt to decolonise this and our relationship with this, which is a very long journey that I think we're all just starting to pick at the edges of. So it's kind of, I think, as far as a challenge goes, when our hearts and minds are aligned with what we're trying to do, but we, we come up against, in us and the people who are with us, you know, we come up against these very strong reflexes and societal sort of panics of you know should we just own it we just need to own it you know that's easy we'll be safe once we own it that's right yeah there's also some very kind of mundane challenges in that we've got this thing conceptually that we want to achieve but then it's like getting advice from accountants and we've had a great lawyer that we've worked with to try and figure out how to then turn this into stuff that works within Centrelink and thinking about access to pensions and yeah, all the kind of legal and, and yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. That is just, yeah, massive. It's absolutely massive and really challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we found uh, in Farming Together that finding the right experts to give you advice and support was actually one of the really challenging things for a lot of primary producers like where do I go to find the right people for sometimes this really specific and quite unique context because uh, uh, the wrong kind of advice can really set you up on a difficult path 
And it's also yeah. about finding finding the people who are both, you know, highly competent. They know how to work the system and also creative and big Open. thinking. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So like both both our accountant Jenny Devine and our lawyer Matt Grogan both have that, yep, I'll make sure you don't get in trouble and we'll do the best that we can. But also we're trying to do things that are different. You know, so how do we, how can we come up with it? And, you know, Matt came up with this thing around the accrued equity over the life of the trust while working in his own market garden, pondering over in the back of his head, you know, and paping, maybe we could do something like this, you know. So we're all aware that it hasn't been done before. It's being tested and, you know, who knows what court cases or challenges could happen in the future as to whether you can give away your beneficial interest in a trust like this Mm. or choose to take it as ecological benefit interesting times on this planet so we have to have to have a crack find interesting (laughs) solutions and and you know you you talk about creativity and again that's a really strong theme that i've heard from a lot of people that we've spoken to in this sort of share farming series which is the need to be creative the need to have an open mind the, the need to be able to look at things a little bit differently and with calculated, you know, risks with the right information, support, jump in and have a go. Yeah, it's been a really strong theme, which didn't, didn't surprise me, but I didn't think it would it come out that strongly. Yeah, yeah. and to be, able, to be able to do that, you kind of just need to be so solid on the, the principles and what we're trying to achieve at the core of it. And we learned that from the Open Food Network as well. Like the principles that we set at the start of that 10 years ago are still the principles that we're working towards. So when you're kind of coming up with creative solutions to always have that grounding in those very, very core principles. The other challenge is just purely our time and capacity. Like we, we could be focused on this full time and be making a lot more headway, but we're not. We have two small children and open food network and there's lots of other things going on. So things are not moving as quickly as we and potentially other people on the property would like. But at the same time, it's that sense of long game, like we just have to trust that things are happening at the right time. And what we've learned through open food network over years is People come at the right time and people go when they need to go. And, you know, it can sometimes be really hard, but, you know, we're just not in control of these processes necessarily. So it's just, as Serenity says, you know, holding to that that purpose and clarity about what we're trying to do and why. And then you kind of just adapting and rolling with, okay, we're driving this forward when we can and we accept that things slow down when when that's just the reality of, of yeah. life and that it's headed in the right direction. Absolutely. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's just being okay with where things are at and how things are, are going. And, and I think maybe sometimes slowing, going a bit slower than you plan gives you the space to see things in a different way and, and forge forward in, in perhaps even a, a different way than you, than you intended. I, I want to go back, Serenity, because I think this is something that's really important when you're trying to work in a collaborative space where you, you sort of have got this vision that you want to achieve, but you don't quite know how you're going to get there and what, what it looks like. But the importance of developing these founding principles or, or values, I sort of get a sense that the principles that you developed way back at the beginning of the Open Food Network seem to still drive how you choose to, to live in general and, and work in this project as well. So I'm just interested in thinking of, if it's really important to set these founding principles, how, how mm. one might go about that? 
So the Open Food Network was designed around trying to counter concentration of power in food supply chains that takes that power out of the hands of farmers. One of the core principles then is transparency, like transparency about whose food this is and how much they got paid. And even as it moves through supply chains and other money gets added to it, you know, that's a core design principle that this diversity of responses, like that local people are developing local needs. And so it's not like a cookie cutter that, you know, just if you do it like this, then you can run a short supply chain, but really trying to have something flexible and adaptable to local needs that people could develop, you know, which flowed into Open Food Network is like a platform that sits underneath. It's not the branding of the food hubs. You know, it's about local identity. It's about, you know, supporting those local kind of initiatives. With the open source was really important because the problem that we're addressing was that when people are trying to do short supply chain initiatives, food hubs, et cetera, they're often trying to, you know, they need software, they need operating systems, and they're trying to do that in a vacuum or by themselves with their neighbour who's building a system for them or whatever, but then that person goes off travelling and then they're stranded and, you know, they've never got enough money to get what they actually need and we saw this, it all scales up and down. We're kind of like, so we need to work together to build more resilient mutual infrastructure that we can all use and all be developing so that we're co-investing and that we're backing it up. Like it's not disappearing, it's not going away, it's not getting retired. We can build our, you know, food supply chains on it. And the non-profit thing is very much about, you know, we don't want extraction from this sector. Like this sector is struggling to make ends meet and get alternatives to operate up against, you know, the cost cutting of the big supermarkets and everything else. Like there's no room for extraction and for people to be able to come and contribute and to help make this happen and contribute their knowledge and contribute their time. They need to be confident that they're contributing to something that's for the public good and for the common good. Those are kind of the, the operating space that made it possible for people to come and, you know, sort of throw themselves into it and try and make it work. Yeah, so those are the, those are the kinds of principles that every time, you know, there's always new online food marketplace, you know, thing. Every time we, someone send us one, we kind of look across these principles, transparency, networking, open source, nonprofit. Is it creating the kind of infrastructure that we believe in? And if not, then we don't take much notice of it and just keep doing what we're doing. And we always kind of said, if something came along that was meeting those principles and was doing it better, cool, we'll move on to the next thing. You know, it's kind of interesting. Maybe we need to work on articulating the principles. We've got some written, you know, in the constitution of Pakawichi, but yeah, to really articulate these principles of what this really is about probably a useful thing for us to do <laughs> we, we do we do have a, a holistic goal but we I can't remember it like <laughs> off the top of my head which is um problematic uh, but I think the two the two really core things that we need to keep checking ourselves when we're, we're developing this farm project is do people feel like they can come and be part of it and have a sense of security and connection to the land are we creating something different to this straight ownership thing? Are we helping to solve that problem? And the second thing is, are we improving ecosystem function? Like, are we actually regenerating the land, which is kind of the core thing? So there's two to start with. <laughs> I've, I've found our holistic goal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Go, go Kirsten. Well, we exist to support abundant life and livelihoods by providing healing and nourishment to ecosystems in our community. We seek to belong and become in a beautiful and vital landscape. Then it has a bunch of sub points underneath that. 
So it's a work in progress, but. I don't think you need to do any more work on that. I think you guys are pretty solid (laughs) in what you stand for and how you operate. But I do think it's really important. And I've seen a lot of groups who've been collaborating and, you know, there's, there always comes times where people have very strong difference of opinion, but they've been able to come back to their principles or their values and make their decisions based on Mm. those in order to work out how to, how to move forward. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like you guys are really strongly embedded in those principles in terms of your decisions and actions. And, and it's also being able to come back to mums as well is in the whole thing about seeing the land be maximised for food production and for, for improving the kind of ecosystems and, and enabling the family to have continued access to that as well, which is core to the whole thing. Yeah, and I probably just want to have a shout out and an acknowledgement to her as as well. Like it wouldn't happen without trusting this and really she was a, a mainstream farmer, but she was at the start of land care and has been an amazing land care throughout her life and a, a naturalist and a birdo. And she has been following the ecosystem improvement over time and since we've had the lease and is excited about where that's going but she's taking a big step in backing us and I just wanted to really acknowledge that as well oh shout out Mm. to serenity's mum because I tell you what it is her her name is Debbie Debbie Hill shout out to you Debbie amazing because it is it must be so scary and we've seen this again in, in a lot of older farmers and landholders it's a big risk for them to shift in the way they are seeing their land used and so forth sounds amazing good on you Debbie (laughs) <laughs> yeah she made me promise that there would be no alpacas and horses I was like yeah, mum no alpacas and horses and we're, she's, she's guiding us in develop, we're developing this flock of Aussie white sheep so she's supporting us in that and she can see that that's heading in the right direction in terms of having a good solid flock that's producing good products so yeah not that we're saying for any of those people out there that have alpacas or horses that it's a bad thing it's just not the direction for not the direction for this place no can I just add one thing to that and that's just the sense of um building on the generations on this particular property Serenity's mother you know her parents and also her great uncle these kind of little patches and touches like a lot of the things that are attracting people like people who are wanting to come and be there now because of a lot of planting from the 80s and 90s which now has quite a lot of biodiversity you know areas that were degraded gullies now got lots of trees and birds and you know all of that kind of thing and similarly the water infrastructure and some of you know the couple of old macadamia trees and things like that that serenity's great uncle planted so this kind of sense of within her family operating within the constraints of the mainstream systems, still having these nods and touches towards, I think, you know, there's notes of reading about biodynamics in the 50s and experimenting with things. In the 70s, yeah, yeah. In the 70s. So it's a a, a kind of tradition, a sense that there's a tradition being carried on um, and being adapted and pushed into, into the times and the urgency of the times. Mm. And a part of that, amazingly, is like my, yeah, my grandfather recognising the importance of keeping like the native grasses and and what the native grasses um, brought to the farm, but then not really understanding how to support that with the grazing. And then my mum, again, picking that up in terms of like she knows 
much more about native grasses than I do and we've got that amazing ecosystem base in terms of those native grasses to work on and that was a legacy from previous generations definitely amazing yeah. and sounds like debbie still would be a, a really amazing resource and mentor as yeah. well <laughs> yeah. yes <laughs> yeah things would be pretty dire without debbie <laughs> This is an ode to Debbie, isn't it? This, this <laughs> yeah, <laughs> One thing that I hear a lot from a lot of different groups collaborating is the challenges around dealing with different personalities, having to sometimes deal with egos. And in fact, conflicting personalities can unpick a really great idea and great concept. And I just wanted to know what your experience was like in terms of managing different personalities or how you've been able to navigate that really well, if that's something that you've done well. Well, I think it starts with Serenity and I are both pretty good at managing each other's egos. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I think laughingly speaking, but I actually think it's true with Open Food Network and with this project, it's not that easy to get involved and find your place like we it's sort of easy enough but you have to have a certain amount of persistence and a certain amount of patience and a certain amount of willingness to be involved in some long circular conversations and the sort of selection criteria that happen in practice and in process so that anyone who was it's all about me and this is the way that things are going to be done just isn't going to find a foothold. It's just not going to, it's just, they don't, they don't last. They don't stick around for very long. They don't even get past the first barrier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really. Yeah. yeah. But you know, um, that said, it's also, there's a lot of attention to actually how we communicate. And again, I'm thinking across both projects, you know, we've learned a lot from people who've come and shaped culture and shaped communication and, taught us about nonviolent communication and there's a lot to be said for projects that start that don't have any money when people are coming because they're drawn to it you don't get to tell them what to do so it has to be that sort of listening to each other really understanding what's driving people and trying to shape direction that can keep that intrinsic motivation in place what, what advice would you give to others in terms of navigating that those relationships you've got to do the work on yourself you lead by who you are and how you take feedback and how you listen and respond to other people. And if what you get is what you give kind of thing. Go deep, that, people, go deep. <laughs> that, that would be me. I don't know, Serenity, do you have something more practical and tangible than that? No, <laughs> I know what no, Serenity's would be. If someone's annoying, what? just write them off and don't waste any more time on them. <laughs> that, that would yeah, be yeah, Serenity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much like yeah annoying people don't yeah that's right get in at all um (laughs) i i think maybe i just want to touch on something else that's it's not that it's not about um difficult personalities it's just about at pakawiji there is two quite distinct deeper motivations and twin vision almost for the farm with these other families that are coming onto the farm we all have kids and we we think that part of the shift and important change in the world is about regenerative culture and about kids having nature connection and growing up with that experience of deep immersion in the land. So there are the people who have moved to the farm, that's their kind of core thing that they want to work on. And then and then we've got us and others, you know, working on the food production side. 
not about attention, it's about how you actually hold those two potential priorities alongside each other and make them kind of complementary. Yeah. And, and how do you do that? <laughs> well, we'll, we'll see. We're figuring it out. <laughs> but I think, I, think that, I think the vision is, you know, that the way that we farm, the way that we manage land is the way that we live and the way that our kids grow up believing that this is how you live and this is how you live with land and this is how food is produced, you know, so it's all very ideological, I guess. Yeah. And then so talking about, you know, our kids and the future, Kirsten, you said we should come back and do this again in 80 years' time. Um, (laughs) Since we may not, we may have that opportunity, who knows? Who knows how medical science will go in terms of our longevity of the future? But in case we don't, can you take us forward to 80 years now and what you think it would look like? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one because there's a bit in my mind that won't go there because there's so much uncertainty about climate and all of these kinds of things. So we can't possibly say what it will look like. My aspiration would be that our kids and their kids, and that's much more broadly than the ones that are biologically ours, living in these landscapes in a way that's healthy and thriving and abundant and productive. And there's lots of other species and, you know, biodiversity. I think if we could get to that in 80 years, that Northeast Victoria people and many other species are living, thriving, abundant, healthy lives, then that's, that's the goal. Any more specifics we leave to how this unfolds and our children and but if we can if we can get to that that these places are not just vacated and inhabitable, then I think that that would be success. How would the not for profit that you're establishing play a role in that? I think it's about holding space or a, a nest or a place that this exploration can happen outside speculation in land prices, property prices that would potentially make this inaccessible to the people with the kind of values and practices that we're trying to find a place for, like what's happening to land prices all around us at the moment will make it not possible for people who don't already have access to farmland to get it. The nonprofit is creating a space and that long-term this land will be managed in this way by people who care about these kind of values. And so mm. let's, see what, let's see what's possible when we hold that space. Mm. And there's a, very, there's a very practical thing about the non-profit as well. It's got a deductible gift recipient status, so we've got, we've got an office and we, we want to use it as an investment vehicle or opportunity for people, for philanthropy and others to contribute to the broader public value and vision that we're trying to create and also we've set up the constitution of the non-profit to leave open the option of leasing or buying other land down the track in the kind of system as well and kind of promoting this more broadly than the the 400 acres that we're currently um, on yeah and just to throw it in there we have a um, one of our directors we have a partnership with the RMIT Dr Sam Grover is a soil scientist so we're working with her and students, you know, are really around how do we do the documentation and the benchmarking and the ecological systems tracking. So we've got a kind of research. We like evidence-based practice and we're trying to put that in place wherever we can. Yeah, I'm in awe of, of what you guys are doing. It's really inspiring and hopeful as well. I think it, it gives a lot of hope. 
I always finish on one question, which is what has surprised you most about farming together? It's not so much about farming together. It's about people together. That has been a surprise, you know, over 10 years and I've just kind of learned to accept is just how magical it is about who turns up at what time and what they bring and what that makes possible. So that's the thing that surprises me over and over again when you're kind of pulling your hair out and thinking what's going to happen next and then someone arrives and says, could I do this? And you go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think when you set yourself up to be open for that, it always yeah. seems to happen. Yeah. For more tools and resources to help you work collaboratively, head to farmingtogether.com.au or join the conversation on the Farming Together Program's Facebook page. You're listening to the Farming Together Podcast.